One of the most important things that we do as a church family is encourage and equip people for preaching God's Word and leading God's people. One of the ways we do that uh, here at Church on Mill is through our pastoral residency. The church owns multiple houses in the city block around us, and uh, we are blessed to have them full of people who are uh, training for ministry, engaged in ministry. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Of the, the list of four or five priorities a thoughtful biblical church will have, this will be one of them, that, that we're concerned with the growth and spread of the gospel beyond us. So I'm thrilled to be part of a church that isn't just concerned with getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but wants to see people sent out and churches do well as they're started and led by other people. So we've had lots of residents. You've been part of that through faithfully giving to sustain these houses and paying for training materials and books and joyfully embracing uh, young uh, men as they're being equipped for the work. So thank you for that. That kind of ministry never feels urgent, and, and yet it's one of the most vital things that we do. Why am I bringing all this up? Um, well, I ran out of things to say, so thought we'd go there. No, it's uh, because Phil Hoshiwara is going to be preaching today. Uh, Phil is a resident here. He's ending his first year of residency today, and so we thought to celebrate he would preach. He's starting a new year of residency tomorrow. Uh, Phil and uh, Julie are expecting their first. Are we allowed to say the name? Yes? I saw a picture. Sophie. Sophie is due in two weeks. And uh, so pray for them as Phil enjoys his last nights of sleep. <laughs> Phil is a, a godly man, and Julie is a godly woman. Long term, their plan is to go to Thailand and do, do church planting, where there are very, very few Christians. So today we'll be uh, hearing from Phil. Uh, I have heard what he uh, preached. He came over yesterday, and I got a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I need all the help I can get. So I can tell you already that it's going to be faithful to the Scripture and helpful to you. And so I hope you'll listen to him with attentiveness. I'm going to read our text for us as Phil comes. So we're in John 10. And I will uh, read for us verses uh, 22 through the end of the book, of the chapter, sorry. Phil, that would be a long sermon. So it says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking to the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me and follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, because I and the Father are one. 
The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered them, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and he remained there. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him. not to repeat everything that Pastor Chuck just said, but it is great to be a part of a church that uh, is concerned to equip and prepare people and send them out. That's why I'm standing up here today. Uh, Pastor Chuck and the elders of Church on Mill have put this whole congregation at great risk by allowing me to preach. You have not made it to 2018 yet, (laughs) but uh, it really is a sign of a healthy church that doesn't have just an inward focus, but that outward focus to build up the church at large. So today we're continuing our uh, sermon series in the book of John. We're in chapter 10. Before we start, I want to give an illustration that I think gets at the heart of the text that we're going to be reading today. So this illustration, it comes from a movie that you've probably seen uh, from the early 90s. It's called Hook. And if you're not familiar with the the storyline, let me just give you a quick recap. It's about Peter Pan, and Peter Pan has grown up, he's forgotten who he is, and he's known now as Peter Banning, a self-absorbed lawyer, and there's no connection between those two things. But he's got no time for his family, and one day, Captain Hook comes, steals his two kids, and goes off to Neverland. So Peter's forced to go back, and when he's there, he reunites with this group of adolescents known as the Lost Boys. And these lost boys used to be followers of the pan. But now they don't recognize him because he looks nothing like the former pan and he doesn't do any of the things that the former pan did. During his absence, a new leader has risen up, a guy named Rufio. And Rufio does not take a liking to Peter. He sees him as a threat, someone who's challenging his authority. And so he easily convinces the lost boys that whoever this Peter fellow is, he can't be the pan because he doesn't do anything that the pan did. He doesn't fly, he doesn't fight, he doesn't crow. He can't be the pan. And there's a scene in the movie where Rufio takes a sword and he draws a line in the dirt and asks the lost boys to choose who they're going to follow. And without hesitation, they all rush to Rufio. Now, as the movie develops, Peter begins to remember who he is. And he regains some of his former abilities, all of his abilities. There's a scene where he flies through the village of the Lost Boys, and they all watch on with amazement 
And even Rufio is convinced that this must be the pan. And so he falls down on his knees before Peter and says, you can fly, you can fight, you can crow, you're the pan. And now it's Peter's turn. He takes the sword and he draws the line. And this time, the lost boys all rush over to Peter. Now what made this second occasion different than the first? And why did the lost boys flock to him so quickly when they didn't before? It's because they saw what Peter did and they believed as a result that he was the pan. So the actions of Peter, namely flying, convinced the lost boys that he's the pan. In today's passage, we're going to see something very similar. Jesus is going to make a claim about who he is, and he's going to argue that people should believe his claim based on the works he's doing. So this is the overarching theme of our text. Jesus' actions, his works, declare who he is. So let's go ahead and, and start in on the text and see if this is right. The setting for a text is the Feast of Dedication. This was a celebration of a time nearly two centuries before when the temple had been rededicated to God. So at that time, there was a Greek king who was heavily oppressing and persecuting the Jews, and he went so far as to raid their temple and set up a pagan altar to the Greek god Zeus. And you can hardly think of anything that would be more offensive to the Jews than to have a pagan altar at the center of their most sacred place of worship. So it's not surprising that the Jews revolt and they retake the temple, cleanse it, rededicate it to God. So this piece of dedication remembers that time, but now it's 200 years later and the Jews are back under the thumb, this time of the Roman Empire. So you can imagine there's a little bit of tension in the air as they remember that time when they had just the whiff of independence from the foreign ruler. And along comes Jesus, walking in the temple. And he's not just at any place in the temple, he's at the colonnade of Solomon. Solomon, who was the king over Israel at, at the height, the pinnacle of their glory, when they were under the thumb of no one. We've seen over the past several weeks that Jesus is a rather controversial figure. He said some controversial things. He said things like, God is my father. He said that all the scriptures are about him, that they bear witness to him. He said, if you believe me, you will have eternal life. And I know God, for I come from him, and he sent me. These claims are incredible. And the Jews are fully aware that Jesus is taking upon himself the title of Messiah, or the Christ. This is the one whom all the scriptures said would come and liberate God's people. In fact, we've already seen the Jews try to take Jesus and make him king by force. Jesus had to hide himself to prevent that because it was not his mission to establish a political kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual, heavenly kingdom. So we've got the Feast of Dedication. We've got Solomon's Colonnade. We've got at the center this guy, Jesus, making messianic claims. Now add to the mix a large crowd of Jews who do not like the claims that Jesus is making and are convinced that he's leading the people astray, that he's a false messiah. This is 
an explosive situation. And it's the setting for our scene. The Jews, if you look in verse 24, it says they're gathering around Jesus. And this is not like a friendly gathering around to hear a story. This is antagonistic. The verb here is usually used of armies that are surrounding a city to besiege it. It's almost always used in hostile situations. So we should think of the Jews as surrounding Jesus almost like a pack of wolves. Only instead of things, they've got a question. And we see that question in verse 24. They ask, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Have you ever been asked a disingenuous question? A question that it's, it's not just trying to get information that it needs, but it's got some underlying aim or motive. An example of that might be a teenager who sneaks out on a Friday night to go to a party. And the mom finds out from a concerned neighbor. And the next day, she goes to her daughter's door, knocks, she answers, and she says, she asks, where were you last night? That question isn't meant to get information that she needs. It's, she already knows where her daughter was. The question is meant to confront her daughter's deception. So in a similar way, the Jews asking this question, they're not seeking new information. They're seeking a confrontation, perhaps even an opportunity to condemn Jesus as a false messiah. Uh, I think that from Jesus' response. Look at verses 25 and 26. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So Jesus says, you already know what I've said, who I've claimed to be, and more than that, you've seen the works that testify who I am, that I'm the Christ, and yet you still do not believe. Interestingly enough, we saw this same argument being made just a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 9. If you remember the story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, he does this, and the blind man understands that what Jesus did said something about who Jesus was. So, when the jealous religious leaders come to this blind man and start interrogating him about this healing and start to question Jesus' identity, this is what the blind man says, now healed. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So Jesus did a work that should have made it abundantly clear that he was from God. But the Pharisees could not see it. They couldn't accept it. Why? Because the problem of the Pharisees was not a lack of information. It was a lack of belief. And I think that this is the same problem that we see in our passage today with the Jews gathered around Jesus. They don't lack information. They've got all the data sitting in front of them. They're simply not willing to believe. So let's bring this forward into the here and now, because that question that the Jews asked Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? It's still being asked today. It's still very relevant. The question, who are you, Jesus, can sometimes be sincere. 
uh, going back again to the, the blind man who was healed, he is kicked out of the synagogue by the religious leaders, and Jesus finds him and says, do you want to believe in the Son of Man? That's another, another title for the Christ or the Messiah. And the blind man responds with a question, who is he, sir, that I may believe? That's a sincere question. He, he wants to know who the Christ is. And so Jesus answers him, I am he. So, of course, it's very possible to ask that question sincerely. But I want to make it very clear, and I want us to be aware, that it's also very, very possible that that question, who are you, Jesus, is insincere. And often that question is asked insincerely, just as it was for the Jews in our text today. Here's why I think that that question can be insincere. I am convinced from Scripture that the main obstacle to a person putting their trust in Jesus is not needing the facts. It's not evidence that's intellectually dissatisfying. The main obstacle to putting your trust in Jesus is a sinful, unbelieving heart. It's a heart that doesn't want to believe because it loves sin. We see this in John chapter 3, same book. Jesus says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Those verses are describing people who love their sin, and they don't want to give it up. So when Jesus comes saying, follow me, I am the Christ, leave that sin behind, follow me, all they hear is a threat. They hear the voice of someone who wants to take the thing that they love most. Jesus' arrival, for them, it's life-destroying rather than life-giving. So to give an example of a person like this, we can look at Matthew chapter 19, the story of the rich young ruler. This is a man who has a lot of wealth, and he approaches Jesus to ask him, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus essentially says, you've got to love me more than you love your money. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. And if you'll remember, this young man walks away in sadness because he has a lot of wealth. I think that this demonstrates that unless something miraculous happens in our hearts, we won't see Jesus' coming as good news, but as bad news. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to do his work in us and to give us new hearts. It's why Jesus says in John chapter 3 that we must be born again, not physically, but spiritually. And that's what my prayer has been for us here today, that God would soften hearts so that when you hear Jesus' words in this passage today, you would hear the voice of the Son of God with all of its power and all of its weight. And you'd see him as the good shepherd that we talked about last week who came to give his life that we may have life. Okay, we've said a lot up to this point, but the thing I want to make clear from this portion of the text is that the greatest obstacle to believing Jesus is a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's the obstacle that Jesus identifies in his response to the Jews. 
Now he's going to go on and he's going to describe the great work that he's doing that should make it evidence that he is from the Father, from God. Jesus has just said that the works he does in the Father's name bear witness about him. So looking at the works should say who he is. So it's a good thing to do at this point um, to ask what are these works. And what I want to say about these works is that they include everything that Jesus has been doing up to this point. Yes, they do include the more miraculous. So you've got him turning the water into the wine. You've got the healing of an official son, the multiplying of bread and fish to feed thousands, the healing of the man that was born blind. But these works also include the simple conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman, which Jesus called the work of God. It includes the simple act of trusting the Father, which again Jesus calls the work of God. So from the miraculous to the mundane, when Jesus refers to his works, he's talking about everything he's been doing, from his teaching to his good deeds to his miracles, all of it. And all of these works are meant to point, point to and lead to a greater work. The greater work is found, if you look at verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Eternal life is the great work of Jesus and shows that he's the Christ. Eternal life is the fullness of all the little works that Jesus has been doing. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Well, eternal life is the greater, more joyous celebration. He healed a cripple. Eternal life will be the fullness of health, not only physically, but spiritually. Jesus multiplied bread and fish to feed thousands. Eternal life means we will never hunger again and will be eternally sustained by the life-giving person of Jesus. It's perfect righteousness. It's no more sorrow or sin. It's perfect fellowship with God. And it's life under Jesus' perfect rule. So Jesus is showing in the passage that the great work of giving eternal life and all the little works that point to that work are evidence that he's from the Father. Why, why is this the case? Because both the Father and the Son are doing this work. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then right in verse 29, he says, My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you've got Jesus doing the work, you've got the Father doing the work. Jesus' conclusion, I and the Father are one. If you don't know much about ancient Judaism, I can tell you this, it's not a good idea to say that you're one with God. That's called blasphemy, and it's a good way to get yourself killed. That's why we see the Jews picking up stones in this passage. They're done with questions. They've got stones in their hands now. Because in verse 33, Jesus, a mere man, is making himself out to be God. So, Jesus is in a a predicament. What's his defense going to be? It has to be pretty good because apparently his life depends on his defense. Look at verse 34. This is his defense. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, 
and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? This is probably the strangest and most confusing part of the text. (laughs) So bear with me. We're going to spend just a little time unpacking this. Jesus is citing a psalm. It's Psalm 82. Uh, We don't have the text for you, so let me just give you the gist of the psalm. In this psalm, God is addressing a group of rulers, and there's some debate about who these rulers are, but for our purposes, it doesn't matter. The point is, these rulers have been given authority by God to judge between peoples. They are representatives of God. In fact, Scripture goes so far as to call them gods. That's in verse 6 of Psalm 82. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. So what we see is that in their authority to judge and rule over people, they act as God. And in that sense, they can be called gods with a little, a lowercase g. But these gods have a serious issue because the God, with a capital G, the one who gave them the authority to judge and rule over people is upset with them. It says in verse 7, they will die like men. They will fall like any prince. So their representative rule of these little gods, their representative rule on God's behalf is going to be ended. And the reason is, according to the psalm, that they have judged unjustly, they've shown partiality to the wicked, They've abused the weak and fatherless, that's verse 3, and they failed to rescue the weak and needy, verse 4. Okay, now to the question, why in the world is Jesus calling Psalm 82 as his defense against the Jews' accusation? And the answer is, he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying that if these rulers in Psalm 82 can be called gods in some sense because of their representational rule, even though they've completely distorted that rule by being impartial or being partial and being uh, unjust, then how much more can I, Jesus, call myself the Son of God who represents the Father perfectly? I've been sent by God, he says, consecrated by God. I'm the real deal. You can imagine two children who've never been to the ocean but they love to go swimming in their backyard. And they pretend that this backyard pool is the ocean. So they call it the ocean. But one day their parents take them to the California coastline and they stand on the beach staring out at the vastness of the Pacific and their jaws drop and they say, oh, this, this is the ocean. That kiddie pool might have, we might have called it an ocean And in some way, it might have represented the ocean, but here's the real deal. In the same way, Jesus is the real thing. Hebrews 1 tells us he is the exact imprint of God's nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here stand the Jews looking out on the vast glory of the Pacific Ocean with its crashing waves, its immeasurable depths, and they say, blasphemy. How dare you call yourself an ocean? But they're not offended by those gods in Psalm 82 who twisted 
and misrepresented the rule of God and even tried to usurp his authority. It sounds absurd until we realize that we so often do the very same thing. We are offended by Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, and we kick against the implications of that claim, that he should have rightful rule in our life. Yet all the while, we don't hesitate to receive the little gods that would take God's place in our life. Money, sex, career, video games, food, leisure, you name it. It doesn't have to be something that's inherently bad. The point is, all these things have the potential to dethrone God's rightful rule in our lives and become objects of worship. They can enslave us. Just a couple of days ago, I was reading an article. The the title caught my eye. It was titled, The BMW Addiction That Completely Destroyed This Man's Life. It was about a man who, on the outside, looked like he had everything together. He was polite, respected. He had a good job as an accountant. He had a loving wife and kids, a nice home, and 50 BMWs that he had purchased with money embezzled from his company. This is a true story. He had been stealing this money over the course of seven years, and he spent every dime on BMW cars and parts. His family had no idea that he was doing this. He had them stored in different lots all over the city. Eventually, everything came out. He lost his wife, he lost his career, his kids won't talk to him, and he spent some time in prison, of course. It brought his life down in ruins. BMWs. You're probably not struggling with a BMW addiction, but we all have something in our life that would enslave us or has enslaved us. We see this principle in Matthew 6.24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So in that context, God is, is talking about money. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with money. But in this verse, Jesus exposes the condition of our human nature, which is that we are servants. We are going to serve something. The desperate search for a husband or wife can become our master. Family, Netflix, the approval of someone in your life, a certain social status, your phone, these things can become your masters. And we serve them as slaves and worship them as gods. And then, when the real deal comes along, the one who rightfully deserves our worship and says, I'm the son of God, Believe in me. Follow me. We're offended. Take some time to reflect. What false God is currently on the throne of your heart? What thing is laying claim to your worship? That should be offensive. That should be as offensive as a pagan altar to the, to the god Zeus in the middle of Yahweh's temple was to the Jews. Keep that thing in your mind. Whatever it is that wants your worship, what kind of works is it doing? I know it's, 
it must be doing something for you, something that gratifies or satisfies to some extent, because if that wasn't the case, it wouldn't be a pull for you. But ask yourself, is it really giving you life, or is it sucking it away? The works of false gods, of false messiahs, are ultimately destructive. Always. Those paths, eventually, when they're walked to the furthest point, will always end in death. But the work of Jesus is life-giving. And it's that work that confirms to us he's from the Father. So, some of you may be thinking right now, that sounds great, but what if I don't believe Jesus is the real deal? He's the one that gives that life-giving work. How am I supposed to know what really gives life and what really deserves my worship? And that question brings us right back around to the heart of today's passage. It's what we've been saying all along. Look at verse 37 in our text. Jesus says, after making the claim, I'm the Son of God, he says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus doesn't just make a claim. He makes a claim and then he provides supporting evidence for that claim through his works. In other words, he appeals to his works as the reason they ought to believe his claim. Now that could lead to a second question that you might have, which is, What if I've never seen Jesus' works? That's a pretty fair question. (laughs) That might have been good. That might have been okay for people living in Jesus' time who saw his works with their own eyes, but I have not seen that personally. So what do we do with that? Let me just give you three thoughts about that. First, as we saw earlier, remember and understand that we all have a strong bias against believing Jesus. Even if we saw Jesus' works with our own eyes, which was the case with the Jews in our text today, they saw his works, that's not necessarily going to convince us. Understand that there is something greater than a lack of evidence that has to be overcome in our hearts if we're going to believe in Jesus. Second, Consider that the testimonies of Jesus' works hold a lot of weight. John, the author of the gospel that we're working through right now, said, these are written that you might believe. That's the purpose statement for the book of John. These are written so that you might believe. So John is expecting that his recorded testimony would be weighty evidence that would convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. He did not intend to write anything less than an historical eyewitness account of Jesus' words and deeds. His writing bears all the hallmarks of historical writing. And the only reason people dismiss it as fiction today is because it reports on supernatural events. But that's precisely the thing that Jesus is pointing to, along with all of his other works, to prove that he's the Son of God. We cannot carelessly dismiss the witnesses to Jesus' works. There there are just too many of them. And too many of them were persecuted and put to death 
because they were convinced that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. Third, and final thought, and I realize I'm kind of on dangerous ground here, but look at the works of followers of Jesus. I say that because of John 14, 12, a little later on in the book that we're in. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So, the Bible teaches that Jesus is not dead. He died, but he rose, and he went back to the Father, and he sends his spirit to live in everyone who believes in Christ. So, just as Jesus could say that the Father was in him, and he in the Father, so the Christian can say that Jesus is in him, and he in Jesus through the Spirit. And just as the Father did his works through the Son, so the Son does his works through the Christian. This means that you ought to be able to look at a Christian's life and see the works of Jesus. Not perfectly. Not always. A Christian's never going to be perfect in this life. But it's impossible for the Spirit of Christ to reside in a person without producing an effect. There will be a change. And more and more, the works of a Christian will be the life-giving works that Jesus displayed in his own ministry. Jesus said to his followers, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, one more application point that I think that final third thought leads to, uh, which is for Christians. Christian, if you would raise your hand and say, yes, I believe in Christ. I believe he's the Son of God. I confess him to be Lord over my life and my Savior. The question is, are you doing the works that Jesus did? Can you say along with Jesus to your skeptical friend, and this is incredible to me, Jesus says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Can you say that to your friend? If I'm not doing the works of Jesus, then don't believe me. That question might be a little discouraging. If it does discourage you, don't leave thinking, I've got to try harder. I've got to do more works. I've got to be a better person. Remember that we can only do the works of the Father because Jesus is in us doing his works. That's what that verse said. It has to be Christ in us doing the works. It's not up to us to grit our teeth and press through and present works. We'll fail. The key, if the works in your life have not been what they should be, is to turn back to Jesus. Confess sin. Look to him once more. Commit yourself into his hands. Put your trust in Christ. Our passage began with a crowd of people who were offended by Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And it concludes with a crowd of people who follow Jesus to the Jordan River. And there, it says, the text, many believed in him. So there's a division here between those who believe and those who do not believe. If we go back to our Peter Pan illustration, Jesus has taken the sword and he's drawn a line in the dirt. 
If it seemed at first that the burden of answering the question was on Jesus, are you the Christ? Look at this passage closely. Because the burden is not on him. He's already said plainly. And his works show us plainly that he's the Christ. The burden is on us. Will we look at his works and believe? You can fly, you can fight, you can crow. You are the pan, said Rufio to Peter. You heal the lame. You open the eyes of the blind. You hold out life to a Samaritan woman, an outcast at the well. You give eternal life. You are the Christ, the Son of God. If you say that to Jesus, putting your trust in him and letting him have his rightful place in your life as ruler of your heart, he will do his great work of giving eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we thank you for your word that testify to the works that you did and the great work that you did on the cross of giving up your own life to give life to those who turn to you. And Lord, I ask that that work would be made evident to us today and that you would continue to do works that point to the truth of who you are. Lord, will you convince all of us here, will you convince our hearts that you truly are God and that you are worthy of all our worship? May you be glorified in us, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Thanks, Phil, for so clearly sharing with us the truth of what John says about who Jesus is and what our response is to it. Thank you.